Hey everybody, and welcome to episode two of Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. Record. Here we go. And we're back. This time we can, we, good. This time we can honestly <laughs> say we are back because we had our first inaugural episode not too long ago. Well, actually, we've had two episodes, right? We had the inaugural episode, which was before this one, obviously, yes. because this is label number two. But there's also that OER project one that we that we did that is part of the Praxis Pedagogy oh, stable, I would say. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. So this is actually a third one, although it's labeled two. Um, so in essence, we've been back for a while, I guess. Yes. Well, we never really went anywhere. We just traded names. We went from the guild to Praxis Pedagogy. There you go. So we're back. We're we're back. (laughs) (laughs) Squirrel. Um, so thanks everybody for tuning in for another episode of Praxis Pedagogy. We're so glad that you're here with us today. And, uh, we are looking forward to sharing some more insight experience and maybe a rant or two with you. Uh, this episode is going to be a little different in the sense that we're going to be interviewing each other for this episode and possibly the next one if we do back-to-backs, which we will, we're not going to make any promises, but no, no promises. We'll, uh, try to do that. And uh, anyway, so Chad, you said that you wanted to interview me. So yes. I will, uh, I have no answers prepared because I saw no questions. That's but, well. Uh, how often do we actually have anything prepared for these anyways hey dude i've got a whole book here prepared all right you've seen my note-taking skills that's true i am very envious of your note-taking skills which we'll get into in the interview oh snap so it'll be off the cuff here so tim why don't we start out with you telling us kind of your background what your your career is we i know people understand that you are you do work for bc campus right now on secondment from bcit but maybe you could take us a little bit further back and take us through your journey to how you got to BC campus. Sure. First of all, it's secondment. Because when you say secondment, it sounds like I'm going on a hamburger. <laughs> Did I say secondment? <laughs> I'm brutal for that. <laughs> not that anybody's going to notice or anything, because it's not like I brought it up in the podcast and it won't get edited out because um, I'm in charge of editing. Anyway, uh, so the question was, who am I, what am I doing now and how I got here? No, but just how you, how did you get here? Like, what's your journey to this point? How did you, basically, oh. I'm, I'm looking for, like, I know that you're, I know your story, but from trades <laughs> to trades instructor to chief instructor to open education to BC campus, but if you want to fill in the blanks there, that'd be great. And I've been apologizing for that story for a long time. <laughs> um, yeah. So, okay. So went from the world and this is how I always talk about it. Went from the world to this world. And I never use the term real world because I think that's a slam on what we do in education. Um, I, you know, that old adage, uh, those who can't do teach. I hate that yeah, because I think people that, I think people that say that have never actually tried to teach anybody. Um, cause you, you obviously you have to know what you're doing to be able to teach it. Um, anyway, I, Ooh, I almost got on a rant right there. I reined it in. <laughs> um, but, uh, so I, I don't call the, what, what most people would say the real world, I don't call it that because it makes me feel like what I do in the classroom or what I do in a department or what I do for whatever organization I'm working for. It makes me feel like what I'm doing is not important. It makes right. me feel I, like that what I'm doing is fake or somehow less important than what the other world or the quote unquote real world does. And I, I just despise that statement. So 
anybody wants to send me off on a rocket ship rant, then all they need to do is just do that. So um, how I got from the world to this world was uh, in, a, in a quick answer. Uh, I was sitting on a committee uh, representing the company I was working for. Uh, and the committee is called a, uh, uh, it was called a piping advisory committee. And so we call it PAC. And mm-hmm. um, so what I was doing was I was sitting on this committee representing our little piece of the pie of industry. And I knew the chief instructor of the piping department and I heard rumors that they were hiring and I didn't really want to put my name in because I kind of knew what it would be like to try and get a job in this world. And because I had known some guys that had tried and failed. Um, and so I was, I was being paid a good wage. I was comfortable. I was happy. Um, and right now your, your trade was plumbing. My trade is plumbing and gas fitting. Gotcha. And so, um, yeah, so I, I love teaching. I've always loved teaching and I had done teaching off of the side of my desk for, you know, more than a decade, even when I was out in the field working as a plumber, not including apprentices and all that other stuff. Right. So, um, teaching was not a stranger to me, but, uh, I kind of knew what I was getting into because of what other people had experienced. So I kind of put it off for a while. And then one day I was driving by, uh, going home. Uh, and I thought to myself, you know what, I'll just stop in and say hi to the chief instructor and, um, and just ask him about the opportunity that I heard through the rumor mill. And so I, I go in and, uh, I'm shaking his hand and literally before I can say anything, he's, his first question to me is when are you going to come and work for us? Wow. And so I'm like, okay, well, bingo, that's kind of why I'm here. So literally two and a half, three weeks after that handshake. I'm, I'm accepting a position with BCIT to, to come and teach. Uh, it was a contract position, so it wasn't a full-time permanent. It was a full-time temporary. So mm-hmm. I had a contract, but um, literally, like if you include the two weeks uh, notice I gave my company, five weeks after that handshake, I'm on the ground at school teaching, which was crazy. And that was over 10 years ago. And in that time, uh, finished what we call a provincial instructor's diploma, which kind of, it it exposes you to what it means to be a teacher in Mm. the adult education. And when I went through it, it was a, it was a, it's a good program. It was a good program. I think it's even better now. Um, and I did it in a year. It's supposed to take two years, but I did it in a year. And it's not because I'm, you know, Joe hungry and just bit down and just wanted to do it. I got caught in some uh, HR uh, net. Not not that that's a bad thing, but uh, I was under the impression I had two years to complete it. Uh, and because of the position that I was hired at and the pay scale I was hired at, I mm-hmm. actually only had one year to get it done. Otherwise, they would freeze our wage as right. an incentive yep. to, to finish. Yep. So blasted through that. And then uh, a couple of years later, um, well, more than a couple of years, four, four and a half years later, did a master's degree. Um, and that too was kind of a, a weird situation to begin with, but it all worked out and uh, finished that off in two years. And what was and your master's that, degree in? It's a master of arts in leadership and it awesome. was, it's from Royal Roads University and it's a, it's a fantastic program. 
And um, since then, I've, I've seen a couple other people go into the same program as, as mine. And uh, there's one particular person who is in a master's, um, not you, uh, his name is uh, Steve. And uh, he's in the Master of Arts in Educational Leadership, which was the one I was really kind of eyeing and really wanted to get in on, but they hadn't finished putting the program together. Oh, okay. And they didn't know when they were going to have it done. So I, and right. I didn't want to wait, right? Because um, kind of when I set my head to something, I don't like waiting. Like once I finished all the pre-planning and, and getting everything in order, now I'm ready to go. Yeah. And, and nothing's stopping you. Hardly anything. And, yeah. um, so, yeah, so I went and got that degree. I loved it. Um, it was right up my alley. And because uh, I've been a student of leadership for a really long time. I mean, and what I mean by that is uh, I'd been leading a bunch of stuff and like I said, off the side of my desk. And um, even at the company I was working with um, in the world, I was I was working on being a better supervisor, a better leader in the company. Mm-hmm. Um, I take leadership very seriously. And so even the leadership in my home, I take seriously. Um, and so it was kind of right up my alley. I loved all the, I loved all the material, loved most of my professors. Uh, there was a few professors I liked. Um, and then there was one that we didn't see I on, but that's okay. Um, and so that was a really good experience. And, uh, and then about, Ooh, I would say about a year and a half after that. No, more than that. Two and a half, close to three years, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, became the chief instructor of our department. Right. And in our department, we have four. Well, we had fourteen instructors and two support staff. Which, to, for some departments, like the electrical department, that's like that's like one level of, of apprenticeship, right? Right. Um, but in most departments, that's a that's a medium to large department. Yeah, yeah, everybody, definitely. Most everybody is smaller. Than that. So I don't say that to brag too much. I do say that to brag a little bit, but not a lot because, you know, it's, it's relative, but it's, it was, it's an interesting animal because in our department we have four piping trades. So there's plumbing, steam fitting, uh, sprinkler fitting and gas fitting. And so a bunch of different trades under one umbrella in the piping trades. Mm -hmm. So did that for a year and a half. And, you know, if I was to say anything about anything related to life, like getting ahead, doing stuff uh, in excellence, being challenged to uh, grow personally or professionally. It's all about relationships, right? And so I was at a course last year um, in Victoria and there was was somebody else there in my course. This person's name is Amanda Coolidge, who happens to be my boss now. Mm -hmm. And she was in this course with me and we just started chatting. And... um, we and the course was a week long all day for a week so right. you kind of get to know people in the class and so amanda and i chatted not a lot but you know probably three or four times during the week and um out of that relationship uh i began to be exposed to oer oep on that side of the fence right uh, because you you had already been kind of wading into the pool you're about waist deep at that point right yeah Best deep in it, and uh, I had just began to walk down the stairs into the pool, and um, so I was, I was, I was being exposed to it from your perspective, mm-hmm. and then now uh, kind of being exposed to it from Amanda's perspective and, and BC campus's perspective. Pardon me, I'm just having a little sip of water, and um, 
So, yeah, uh, how long ago? April-ish this year, April, May-ish. Mm-hmm. There was a, um, a job placement come up for BC campus called Provincial Trades Representative for Open Ed. And um, there was a few of us that applied and um, I was honored to accept the position. Awesome. So I've been there since... It's funny because I, I say this a lot. I say I've I've only been on the books for about six weeks, seven weeks, because I've had holidays, right? Right. right, um, right. So when I say to people, "Oh, I've been there since July," they're like, "Really? Since July? That's a while." I'm like, "Well, it's only been about six weeks of work." And uh, so, anyway, all I have to say, been there since July, and absolutely loving it, mm-hmm. and um, that we are gathering a ton of momentum for OER and, and, uh, and open ed. It's, um, it's, it's, uh, well, if anybody has listened to us over the last year, whether it's here or at the, at the other podcast, <laughs> um, it's no surprise that we've been saying this a while now is that the trades is on a cusp of change. Mm-hmm. They're on this precipice and some are closer to taking the plunge than others, but there is, there is, um, I, I want to call it a movement, but it hasn't like officially moved in any great way yet, right. but I can sense it. Yeah. I can really feel it. And so, um, I'm just happy to be a part of it. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be, a, a, a person who may be the one who takes the plug out of the dam and, and then the whole thing bursts. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, and then it just, it just has all this momentum and all this power and all this change uh, and to know that I have just played a small part in that is is fantastic. I love it. And uh, so, yeah, that's that's awesome. That's, been doing. that's quite the story. That's there's so much behind that. <laughs> yeah. Um, one, Ready, go. <laughs> one thing that I remember is when we did our trades workshop. When was that? Probably in April, March or April. We oh, were just, yeah. Late March. Was it late March? By that yeah. time, I had fully immersed myself, cannonballed into the the world of OER. And I remember you said something that was really interesting. You said that you were you were all in, but you were tentative. You didn't want to jump in the pool yet because you you needed to take more of a critical stance to it, and you wanted to investigate yeah. it critically. And mm-hmm. on your Twitter handle, even you you mentioned that you're a critical OER practitioner. Can you explain mm-hmm. to me what is what do you mean by that critical process? Like I, I think it's such an important element, and I know there's a lot of people who are into critical pedagogy, and I just think if you could explain mm-hmm. to us what critical pedagogy means to you, it would be amazing. Yeah. No, yeah, I'd be happy to. So, uh, to roll back the curtain a tiny bit, <clears throat> um, the critical piece I picked up on the critical piece after I read that book that you recommended to me, an urgency of teachers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll include a link to that in the show notes because I think it's a year anniversary since that book's been released. Actually, I believe so. Yeah, um, I just saw Sean Michael Morris or Jesse Stromwell. They just tweeted a, a, like a couple weeks ago that it's the one year anniversary of that book. Being oh, wow. released. So, um, so yeah, I'll definitely include a link to that and to them uh, both uh, um, Sean Michael Morris and Jesse Stromwell in the show notes. But um, yeah, so after reading that book. Uh, there was some of it that that really deeply resonated with me, mm-hmm. and the parts that really deeply resonated with me was the critical lens, was the critical perspective on how we teach, and and asking like really significant, deep questions like why, 
why are you doing it this way? Right. Or why are we as a group doing it this way? Is this the only way? Is this the best way? Uh, and, and not afraid to say yes to some of those questions, right? Because right. if, if this is the only way, yes. Okay, good. Um, if Is this the best way? Yes. Okay, well then let's move forward. But more often than not, it, it, the answer wasn't that clear. And that's what, that's what I kind of like. Not the ambiguity of it, but the courage to ask those hard questions in the face of an industry, especially trades, mm-hmm. where we say too many times, we do it this way because this is the way we've always done. Right, right, right. And so um, I, it, those, those critical essays that were in that book, that, that, that deeply resonated with me because I'm a bit of a research nerd too. Mm-hmm. And I, I love doing research on certain things and I love, I'm a bit of a word nerd too. And so I, 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 I find a word or I find a, a phrase or I even find a concept or a, uh, even a, even a part of a philosophy. And I will just, I will sequester myself until I figure this out. Right. And um, so that critical OER practitioner, what that means to me is I don't want to embrace it just because everyone's embracing. It, right. Yeah. I want to ask myself, is it really going to make a difference in what I do? Because I understand that once you embrace something, there's going to be some change. There's there, there has to be. Right. You can't you can't fully embrace something without it changing you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and not that I was afraid of change. I just was wanting to ask myself the very hard questions to myself about myself about am I ready for that change? Because if I embrace this, I'm, like I said earlier, I'm going for it. Yeah. And if I, when I do all this pre-planning and when I do all this pre-thinking, I'm and I'm and I decide to go in that direction. Uh, don't hold me back. Mm-hmm. You can't hold me back. It's like trying to hold a rhinoceros back. You can't. And and I know that about myself so much that if I start feeling like this is a, a, a massive direction that I want to be a part of, I really start looking at myself introspectively and making sure that it's something I'm going to put all of myself into and buy into hundred percent. Right. And, and I, and I say that, um, with, with the, with the, um, the caveat, I guess that even everything about OER, I don't necessarily embrace. Mm-hmm. And there are certain parts of it that I, I have chosen not to embrace yet because I, I want to understand it more. There's stuff about OER that I guess, um, is is foreign to me still, mm-hmm. and so I want to figure that part out. And I and I'm I understand certain things about our philosophies or perspectives of OER. I understand them. I'm just not sure I subscribe to them as deeply as other people do. Right. And and I, and I think that that's okay. I think there's enough space in the OER world for that that thing well if we go and and i not to interrupt you but if we go back to last week's uh, podcast when we talked about how rajiv and and um why am i drawing a blank there's that quote that talks about how open pedagogy is a conversation well you can't yeah. you have to have two sides to that conversation and it's not really an interesting conversation if you're both agreeing all the time in fact the conversation ends really quickly but if yeah, you can no, exactly. if you can have two people talking and sharing and, and kind of pushing back. And I think that's one thing that I really appreciate about our relationship over the past few years is the fact that you do hold that critical element 
And whereas I'm more of the glass is not only is the glass half full, but it's overflowing. So I, and I get excited about things, <laughs> but you're, you're the ones that you, you can push back and ask me the hard questions, right? You're like, well, that's great. And when I started jumping into open pedagogy, you would ask me questions like, well, that's, that's awesome. That's exciting. And I'm glad that they're loving it. But have you asked yourself what you're going to do about assessment? And I was like, I had to pump, pump the brakes a little bit on some things so I could go do some investigation. And I think that opened a whole new world to me about ungrading, which I'm still kind of struggling with and uh, having self-assessments and peer assessments and getting our students involved in assessment. None of that would have happened had you and I not had those conversations. So I think having that critical element is so very important when we get into these conversations and not to surround us just in an echo chamber, but to have people that we know will push back against us. And you, I mean, you do, you embrace open pedagogy, but you also, for me anyways, you're that sounding board where you're, you're like, that's awesome, but, and having somebody in a conversation that can add that, but I think that's just very, very powerful. Oh, I appreciate that. Well, I appreciate that's, you. Um, oh, well, I, <laughs> um, no, thank you. Because, uh, I, I learned when, when, when you, when you take a master's degree, uh, I think it, well, at least for me it changed a lot about how I process things. And there was one book that I was forced to read, which, you know, looking back on it, I still didn't like very much because I found it was just a little too on the woo woo side. I won't say the name of the book or the author because I don't I'll have to ask you offline. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I won't even put it in the mystical show notes. (laughs) Um, But what it, what it was talking about was, a shift from discussion to dialogue and mm-hmm. i thought okay really like come on seriously are you kidding me right now but his his point was that <laughs> that discussion if you if you say it and think about it it actually sounds a lot like percussion right right when you when you have a discussion with somebody it's a lot like a percussion instrument where you're just pounding on this thing to get noise out and you're not really paying attention to what the other person has to say because you have you think that what you have to say is more important, and so uh, you just you just basically beat them down in a conversation. And you know when you watch when you watch really I guess well trained or I was going to say well educated, but uh, even well educated people get this wrong too. But when you watch people debate, and I don't even I don't even want to go near the politics yeah. debate because those guys belong in kindergarten classroom right out loud Mm -hmm. but um uh when when you watch when you watch um people debate properly it's it's a it's a dialogue yep right like and and i know it's i know it's mediated and for the most part and and all that jazz but and and that's where this person was coming from in the sense that you want to stop having discussions with people in the sense that you want to stop beating people over the head with your point of view yeah to either beat them into submission to your point of view or you beat them away so that they stop talking. Mm-hmm. Um, you move from a discussion to a dialogue. And so you're, you're putting down your percussion instruments. And, 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 I, and I grab the metaphor really quickly because I'm a drummer. I play drums. I'm a, I'm a percussionist. Yeah. So I get it. Get it right? um, but a percussionist or a drumist can actually play their instrument super quiet yeah. and still, still deliver the story still deliver the message or the note and and then sometimes playing it quieter it it has a a broader and deeper impact oh, wow. because people don't expect it yeah right exactly and so um 
so that that thing really hit me and i thought okay now now i'm beginning to understand a big part of this piece where if i start dialoguing with people and it kind of fits into this thing of you know you don't you don't speak to be heard you listen to understand mm-hmm. or something I'll, I'll find the real quote but it, i'm pretty sure that's not it but it's it's not you, you're not having you're not engaging in this back and forth with somebody to win uh the the that point in time you're you're engaging in this activity with somebody because one you want to understand their perspective you want to understand their for what i call their their H, hma matrix right uh, their heart mind attitude action matrix you want to understand why they think the way they yeah. think and why do they have those convictions or why do they have that perspective rather than just l- listening to what they have to say and go well that's stupid or you're wrong yeah um and you know so that's where that that's again where that critical piece comes from it's is not only the challenging piece of it and making me force myself to ask deeper harder questions but it's also forcing me to sit down close my mouth and listen intently and to listen active and that makes oh, sense. totally does you know and you just turned on a light bulb for me there's a book that i will say who it is and and give you the name and we'll put it in the mystical show notes it's called generous thinking a radical approach to saving the university uh yeah i've got that book i haven't oh, read put it, it on your must read kathleen fitzpatrick it is amazing and she talks a lot about that in the book about how we need to learn how to listen and not to hear but to listen and to actively listen mm-hmm. and so many times mm-hmm. When we're in conversation, we're always trying to think about the next thing we want to talk about and not listening to what the other person has said or is saying and how we in in academics, it's a it's a big issue. And I mean, worldwide, it's a big issue for mankind, really. Right. How many times are you in conversations where you can see people kind of glaze over and not be really listening? So I think that's so important to uh, to bring kind of back to our whole conversation, conversation or conversation about conversations is that when we're engaging and in these we, we need to be listening we don't need to be thinking about our next argument like you were just saying but we need to be listening to what the other person is offering yeah and and it's a skill because uh, that can get better you can get really really good at mm-hmm. it because i know i know i've i've been working it since i started my master's and it and it works phenomenally and, and one of the biggest things it's helped me do is to not interrupt or to interrupt people less mm-hmm. and um because you know when you're when you're listening to people have a have a talk and one person keeps interrupting the other person you're like just hold on let that other f- person finish yeah. speaking because they may say something that's completely different than what you're thinking mm-hmm. um, and so it, it comes to the point now where I even catch myself doing it or catch other people doing it with me and, I, and i'll say hey Hey, don't interrupt. Just let me finish. Or I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Keep going. Please don't let me interrupt you. So it's it's super important to uh, to use both your ears because uh, as the old proverb goes, you have one mouth and two ears for a reason. Yeah. Right? Oh, definitely. I've got a friend. It's it's funny that you mentioned that. I just clued into what he does. When I'm in a conversation with him, he lets me talk, 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 and then. It'll almost get to the point where when I'm done talking, there's like maybe one or two seconds where nothing's said. And then he moves on. And what he's doing, I think, is allowing to give me the space to not interrupt. 
And so, and then right. he always has something so powerful to say. He's just one of those people that you can get into great conversations with because I think he's just naturally gifted at this whole idea of listening to people and he takes it very seriously and he, he finds it's a matter of respect for him. I've talked to him about it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, and I would say, yes, that some people are better at it than others because they have that gift to it, but I don't want to scare people away from it either and thinking, well, if I don't have it, then oh, I no, can't no. have it because it's something that you can definitely uh, learn to, to, uh, to use and learn to grow in. And actually, you know, it doesn't even take that much work and it doesn't take that much time to see a marked difference in how you interact with people. Definitely. Definitely. Awesome. Well, you know, we're creeping up on that half hour mark. So I've got a couple more super important questions. You ready? Yeah. <laughs> when we were about to go on to uh, the Zencaster here, you had some music playing in the background. It was very easy listening. What kind of music are you into these days? <laughs> So, okay, I, I listen to, let me, I'll give you the eight minute answer. I listen to a ton of different music, a lot of different styles, genres, backgrounds. It's, it's easier for me to tell you what I don't listen to and what I don't like. I don't like rap and I don't like country Copy. and any form of country. Don't like, it. I just, for some reason, it just grates huh. me. Rap, I, I never liked and never got into. Um, it just could never get into it. So any other piece I love. So I listen to everything from classical, mm -hmm. uh, no country. I listen to <laughs> classical all the way to heavy metal. And so that's what was playing when uh, there was the interlude between our discussions earlier yeah. because, or our dialogue earlier, I should say. <laughs> um, so that's what you were hearing. It was, uh, the band was called Vengeance Rise. There we go. That's what I was looking for. Yeah. I just find it interesting yeah. because I'm more of a folk Rocky type guy. And I, I'm not a big, I hear you on the country Western stuff, I, though. I do love me some Johnny Cash and Dolly Parton and some Willie Nelson. Oh yeah. Johnny Cash. I don't, uh, you could call him country, I guess. Thanks. But I, black. yeah, I, I, it kind of drives my wife crazy. Cause I like Johnny Cash, although all his stuff really isn't all that good, but some of it's really good and some, and some, and I have like the odd song. So when it comes up, I really like to crank it. <laughs> I just love to on your Instagram. Yeah. I love watching your Instagram where you're driving to work and you've got the music just blasting. <laughs> yeah. That's usually at the end of the day. And, uh, I've had, you know, one of those days where you wouldn't mind hitting something on so the way home. You need to put on a little vengeance um, rising. Yeah. You know, it, it for some, like my wife calls it angry music uh -huh. and for a good reason because it sounds like everyone's yeah angry. totally but um but ironically it's it's very soothing to me and I'm, I'm i'm just gonna say this and i don't know how many people would agree with me but i i i believe that there is a closer connection between heavy metal and classical than any other genre i think almost every musician who is a real musician would agree with you that though Oh, well, I hope so, because I've, I've mentioned that to a, a bunch of people and they all kind of look at me like I'm insane. But the reason why I say it is, is not just because of the measure and the parameter and, and, uh, and, and the syncopation and, and all that other stuff. But if you, and, and not every heavy metal band is like this, but if you begin really looking at the music and the lyrics, like there's a lot of it that's, that's pretty deep and significant. It's not, it's not all about, you know, all the black stuff that we often think about when it comes to heavy metal. And I guess you could make the argument for a lot of other styles of music to even country, but I just can't. So. Totally fair. Totally fair. Yeah. One last question. Last movie you watched. 
Oh. <laughs> Last movie I watched. Gosh. What was was that? it on your birthday? See, I talk I I talk a lot about watching movies, but I, I don't spend a lot of time watching movies. What did I watch last? Oh, I'm oh, I know I know exactly what you watched last. I can tell What? You you texted it to me. John Wick three, man. Oh well yeah, we you and I saw that together in the we theater. Did. Um I did I see that again? Can you rent it the other night? Oh, I was going to. I didn't. Oh. I was going to. Yeah. No, I know the last movie I watched. Letters from Iwo Jima. Ooh, little Clint Eastwood for you. Like I knew it was. I knew it was. I knew it was a war yep. movie. Um, because I'm I'm a bit of a World War II history buff. Nothing really serious to get me into any kind of trouble. But, um, well, I know enough to get me into trouble. What I meant was that I'm not serious enough that I could stand toe to toe with some of these big heavy hitters, like Dan uh, Carlin from Hardcore History. Oh, well, who can stand with that guy? Um, but, uh, yeah, so I was, I was actually, I was, I was in a binge yeah. kind of thing, like one movie every three or four days. Uh, and it was all World War II based. So I'd watched Saving Private Ryan. Um, uh, oh, see, now it's, now it's escaping me. Not Letters of Iwo Jima. There was another, there's two others that I watched that were World War II based. Anyway. They made a solid impression on me. Can you tell? Oh, Fury. Um, Cause I've seen Fury like yeah, a million a times and it's a great movie. Um, and there was another one. It'll probably come to me after I press stop recording, but uh, I watched letters of Iwo Jima, mm-hmm. man, that was a great movie. A gr- it's, it's all subtitled. Yeah. So if you're not used to that, it's going to kind of throw you off until you, it's like reading Shakespeare at first. It seems a little clumsy, but when you get used to it, it actually flows pretty nice. Um, and some of it's in black and white, like it's not all color. And so you're like, oh, like that's that's pretty cool. And it's like, if, for those who don't know Iwo Jima, it was, it was an island uh, off of Japan and it's near the end of the war. Like not everybody knows it's going to be the end of the war, but people are feeling like it's going to be the end of the war. And this is the Pacific theater. And there's a lot of focus done on the European theater for a lot of good reasons because of Hitler right. and, and what he was doing to Europe. But a lot of people forget that there was there was an equally evil thing happening around the Pacific. And Japan was leading the charge in all of that. And so Iwo Jima uh, was, was one of these islands that um, really didn't have a lot of significance for Japan. But it held a lot of significance for the allies and so uh to make a long story short the movie was about this i think it was a battalion um a couple thousand japanese soldiers were defending this island from a massive attack i think they i think the allies sent like something crazy like twenty thousand men to that part of the pacific because they were just sweeping through the pacific taking over island after island after island um but the significant thing with with this movie was is that it was it was an army commander that no one had ever seen before had come in to take over the leadership of this group of soldiers and so uh i won't give it away but all through the movie like he just you could see how he just does things differently in his leadership mm-hmm. style and how he treated mm-hmm. his men and what he expected um and i, I won't give any of it away because it's it's a really good movie i really highly recommend it i'll even link it in the show notes he totally show notes. and that was an interesting project by clint eastwood because he did flags of our fathers 
which was the allied perspective. And I think letters from Iwo Jima was the, was the other perspective, right? The Japanese perspective. You know, I, I didn't know that. Sorry to interrupt you (laughs) after all that talk about interrupting. Um, I didn't know that, that he did that flags of the father. So now I have to go watch them because here's the thing. I, when I rented the movie, I didn't know that Clint Eastwood had directed it because I never looked at that part. Right. And so at the end of it, I'm like, I'm, I'm sitting there watching this movie going, Oh man, this was, this was a great movie. And there it is. Clint Eastwood. I'm like, what? Yeah. No way. So, um, you know, it it was, I I think it was probably one of the best world war two movies I've seen. Um, and so I, I highly recommend well, it. I'm going to have to recheck it out. So that was the last movie I watched. Well, thank you. That's, yeah. that's a good movie to watch. It's better than, say, The Goonies <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> awesome. Shazam. Shazam. <laughs> well, we've, we've, come, we've gone past time, Tim. So as always, we, you and I tend to talk too long, too much. But I always get a, a hoot out of it. So thank you so much for sharing part of your story with us today. Yeah, no problem. My pleasure. And uh, I guess next time it'll be my turn to ask you yeah, all the questions. Don't, don't send me any of the questions. Let's just do this. And I won't. <laughs> I won't. You'll have to. You'll have to sit there and take them as they come at you. But uh, yeah, no problem. And it's been a, it's been a pleasure. So thanks everybody for listening. And uh, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, please go to the website praxispedagogy.com. There'll be a link in the show notes to it. Go there. Uh, give mm-hmm. us your name and your mm-hmm. email, and uh, you will be subscribed to every new episode that comes out. Um, Plus, we also want to give you a newsletter once in a while. Uh, we're never going to spam you. Um, that, that's a promise. Um, but we do want to know who's listening and where they're listening from around this awesome globe of ours. Uh, so you can go there. Or if you don't want to do that, that's totally cool. You can find us on iTunes, uh, Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. You'll, we're also on Spotify, on Stitcher, and a few other things. So you can find us all over the place. We're there. And uh, we're here to stay. So thanks again for listening. And Chad, until hey, next time. Can't wait till next time. Talk to you later, everyone. Okay. Bye. Out. Bye.